0: We read this same passage last week, but it's going to be the jumping off point that we're going to go to uh, for the rest of the message today. But we read this last week. I'm going to read it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they, for they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, last week, we looked at this same passage of Scripture, and it's just the diving board that I'm going to take into the rest of the message today. But we talked about how we were kind of using the the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches, the longest sermon that we have of Jesus uh, ever speaking. It, it goes through Matthew chapter, Matthew, chapter five, six and seven. And it is the really the the, the highlight of Jesus preaching ministry is the Sermon on the Mount it is probably the most famous sermon that has ever been preached. And I used it as kind of an analogy for talking about the politics of Jesus and and talked about party platforms. And I said that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is laying out his party platform, what, what the kingdom principles really are. And last week we looked at the Beatitudes, these nine... Bless, Blessing statements at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and I kind of use that as like the the preamble of the platform. Remember, I told you that if you go and look on any political party's website, you're going to find that that one of the main things that they're going to feature is their platform. You can find out what they stand for as a party, and it's usually a fifty or sixty page document. And the very first page is the preamble, and that is the 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 highlight the the high values of that political party. It's what they their goals are. And I talked about this last week and said the Beatitudes, these blessing statements, are Jesus' introduction to the platform. They are the preamble. They are the high values and the high ideals and the goals of the kingdom. It's to be like this. If you missed that message, you can go online and listen or watch it again uh, from last week. But After the preamble in a political party's platform, you get what are called planks. They call them planks. Planks are simply uh, the issues that the party is going to address and the issues that are on that party's agenda. So you've got the platform and there's the preamble, the first page, and then you'll see a table of contents of the planks of the platform. They're the specific issues that the party is saying, if you vote for us and elect us, we're going to address these issues. Are you following me so far? Okay. Remember I told you, you're getting ready to vote. Go read the party platforms, not just your favorite party's platform. Go read both or all of them so you are well-informed. And I told you, and I let you in on a secret, that sometimes they hide stuff in there that they don't want you to know about. And so go read it and know what you're voting for. Amen? Okay. Okay. Now, Jesus, though, he gives the preamble, the blessed statements, the things that are the most important, the high goals and ideals of the kingdom. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving you the planks to his party platform. He's giving you the issues that he wants to deal with in this message. And there's several, and I don't have time to go through all of them today. I'm just going to pick out a few and deal with them. They're the issues in the Sermon on the Mount, in Jesus' political platform that he says, remember, politics is how we relate to one another and how we live together in society. Remember that definition? That's what it means. And so Jesus is addressing how you live and relate with one another, living in a community. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at the planks of the platform this morning. Are y'all ready? Ready? The first one, once you look at Matthew chapter five, verses 13 through 16, this is very, right after the Beatitudes, right after the, the statements about the nine blessings. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. How many of you heard that verse before? You, you, that's familiar to you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the first thing Jesus says first issue in his Sermon on the Mount, salt of the earth and light of the world. I want to make, highlight this, this plank of the platform and say, we are called to be pluses in a world full of minuses. I don't think that's really good grammar, and I don't know if that's exactly how you're supposed to use those words, but I tried every other way to figure out how to say this, but I liked this one. We are pluses, plus signs in a minus sign world. What do I mean by that? Salt and light are additives. Salt and light add to something. You add salt in order to enhance flavor, you add salt in order to magnify taste. It's something you add to your food. It's something you add to a food product in order to preserve it or to, uh, to, to to enhance its flavor. Salt doesn't change the flavor of food. It simply adds to the flavor. It enhances and magnifies the taste. And just like salt, darkness, you you cannot, um, you can't add more darkness to something. You can only add light to something. You following me? So that's why we're talking about additives. Light is an additive. You can only add or reduce light. You can't add darkness. You with me? I can't say, hey, it's, I don't walk in this room and say, hey, it's too bright in here. Let's add some darkness. What do we say? We say lower the lights. It's too dark in here. So let's, let's add some light to brightness. Salt and light are additives. You add or add light to dark places in order to see better. You add light to dark places to illuminate, to make things more accessible and understandable. I come in here every day of the week into this room and walk over to my office and I have to turn the light on because we've rearranged the chairs and I don't know where the chairs are anymore. And I have stubbed my toe many a time walking through here thinking I know where the office is and I can just walk through there. But no, I have to add light so that the room is more accessible to me, so that the room is safer for me, so that I can understand where everything is in the room. To be salt and light means to add more than to take away. To be salt and light means to add more to the creation and the community around you. We are not supposed to be just Christians who are consumers, to just, who just consume resources and, and life and understanding around us. We are supposed to be contributors. Come on. The world t- tells us, get what you can, however you can. Get yours. Get your part. Get ahead. Those kinds of things. But instead... Jesus says the first plank in my party platform is you're supposed to be salt and light. Don't take from the world, add to the world. Don't take from life, add to life. We're not supposed to just be consumers. We're supposed to be contributors. So let me ask you, as a member of the kingdom party, as a member who has paid up on their dues and saying I'm in the kingdom and I support the king and all that he stands for, are you adding to the quality of life of those around you? Are you making a contribution to your family and to your community? Or are you just consuming? You know those people who just drain you? Yeah, if you don't know anyone like that, you're the one. (laughs) You're draining everyone else. Those people who are just, it's draining. They're not adding to your life. They always need money. They always need to talk to you about their problems. They always need, they're they're always needing something from you and they're never giving. Jesus says, no, not if you're going to be in the kingdom. If you're going to be in the kingdom, it's not about what you can get. It's about what you can add. Come on. Are you adding? Are you helping more than you're hurting? Are you making life better? Is life more enjoyable around you? I think I said last week, you know those people that walk in the room and that when, as soon as they walk in, it seems like the lights get like 30% dimmer because they just bring a gloom with them and they, they just bring a cloud with them. We're not supposed to be that way as Christians. I'm not saying be fake and I'm not saying don't have... But listen, our heart's desire is to add to the life of others around us. Come on. Are you soft and light? Listen to this one. Are you exposing darkness? Are you bringing secret things out into the light so that they can be healed? Last Sunday night, we were in our small group and we uh, in here in the sanctuary and we were talking about in first John chapter one, where he says, if we need to walk in the light because the light exposes our own sin. And so I'm not saying here are you the light of the world and your job is only to point out other people's sin. We're the light of the world. And the first place we shine the light is on us is on our hearts and on our darkness and on our issues. And if we do that, we can find healing because salt and light both have healing properties. Salt has healing properties. It has antibacterial and antiseptic properties. They use salt to treat skin conditions like acne and eczema. It's good for you. I remember when I was a kid and I would always go to summer camp and I would come home with mosquito bites all over my body. I lived in Virginia and the eastern Virginia where it's nothing but swamp and there were uh, mosquitoes everywhere. And at summer camp, we would just get eaten alive by mosquitoes. But it was great because toward the end of the summer, we usually would go and spend a few days at the beach before school started. And at the beach swimming in the salt water, I would find that those mosquito bites that I had scratched and itched in my sleep and had gotten infected and scabbed over, if I spent some time in some salt water, they started to get healed. See, Jesus said, you're supposed to be salt to the world. Take healing to the world. They've even found new science. Now, not stuff that's been on the news and people talking about injecting light and those kinds of things, but but they have found that light has healing properties. I was reading this week, and there's a certain spectrum of light called near-infrared light, and they're finding that it can heal the most uh, difficult symptoms of multiple sclerosis. They have found that this near-infrared light is healing blindness in lab rodents, that they're doing all kinds of research of how to bring healing to people through the power of light. Jesus maybe didn't have access to all the science, but he knew that if you would just be salt to the world and you would be light to the world, you'll find a world that's hurting, find healing. Come on. Salt and light means to add to the quality of life and to reduce and relieve suffering of others in the world around us. Plank number one, we're pluses in a minus world. Number two, the plank next one, we remember the internal in a world only concerned with the external. Take a look at what Jesus says next in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. In the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me break this down for you what Jesus is saying. Because a lot of people talk about Jesus, especially in today's world, that Jesus doesn't care about morals or laws. That Jesus is all about grace and mercy and forgiveness, and you can do or live however you want to, and Jesus is fine with that. That's not what he says here in the scripture. He says, listen, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to make sure that the law gets fulfilled. Come on. Now, a lot of people make Jesus into some kind of 21st century snowflake who whatever feels right is fine and whatever looks looks good is cool with me and, and, and just be a nice person. But Jesus is actually more strict than the law was. He takes the law further than it had ever gone before. For example, in Jesus' day, the most influential and conservative group of Jews was the Pharisees. If you've been around church, you've heard about the Pharisees before. The Pharisees, they're sort of like a denomination of Jews. Like we have different denominations of churches that kind of have different styles and, and different beliefs. Uh, there were different denominations of Jews. And the Pharisees were one of the most strict denominations of Jews. They took the law seriously. There's no cheeseburgers for for pharisees because you can't mix dairy and beef you can't have shrimp cocktail if you're a pharisee because that's against the rules you got to make sure jesus even says that they would take every leaf of herbs and they would count every little leaf on a sprig of herbs and make sure that they, every tenth one, they gave to the temple in their tie. They were that they were that uh, particular about making sure they followed the law. You can't even wear clothes that are made out of uh, woven linens of more than one type of linen. So, like right now, this, this shirt probably has some cotton, maybe some polyester in it. I would be sinning if I was a Pharisee, because you can't have more than one type of linen in your clothing. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament, and the Pharisees Pharisees were very particular to make sure you never broke a single law. Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, was a Pharisee. And he says, I lived as a Pharisee, and according to the law, I was blameless. I didn't break. I made sure that I never broke 613, those 613 laws. That's how strict it was. And then Jesus comes around. He says, if you want to inherit the kingdom, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. You've got to be more holy than the holy club. You've got to be more holy than the ones that in in everyone's mind there. It's almost unattainable to get where the Pharisees are, but you have to go further than that. And here's what he means by that. All that rule following is great. And while it's honorable and it's good, it's never good enough. No matter how many rules you follow, it's never good enough because rules are about the external. Rules are about what I can see and what I can observe in your life. But Jesus says it goes deeper than that. And then watch what he does. As soon as he says your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, he gives some examples. Look at verse, uh, excuse me, verse 22. He says, you've heard it say, uh, let me look at that. Um, That's not on your notes. Verse 21. You've heard it say you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But verse 22, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother, some translations say anyone who hates his brother will be liable to judgment, will be guilty of murder. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the to the, the hell of fire, to the hell of fire. That's what Jesus says in by, 522. In other words, he's saying the law says don't kill your brother, but I'm not concerned necessarily when with what it, it, it. it's more important what happens before you ever get to that place in your life. He says, I'm going to take the law further. Don't kill your brother, but also don't even be angry toward your brother. Don't even be hateful toward your brother. See, he's more strict. See, you, anybody can follow the law. Don't kill anybody. I mean, we're most of us can do that. You know what I mean? But then Jesus says, no, it goes. it's deeper than that. It's deeper than just what you do with your external behavior. It's about with the condition of your heart. Look at the next example. He says in verse 27, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Don't cheat on your wife. Don't cheat on your husband. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, most people can control themselves and not cheat on their husband or their wife, not break the marriage vow. But he says, you know what? If you want your righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees, it's not just about your actions. It's about your heart. It's about your thought life. It's about..." Your... He's actually more strict than the Pharisees are because he says anybody can follow the rules on the outside. But what's the condition of your heart? What's the condition of your heart? If you want to inherit his kingdom, you've got to keep his law better than the Pharisees because it's got to go deeper than skin deep. He's more concerned with the internal than the external. If you fix the internal, the external will follow. I think even in our politics today, a lot of times we're fixing symptoms instead of treating the disease. We're fixing, we're trying to fix symptoms of poverty and we're trying to fix symptoms of racism and we're trying to fix symptoms of violence instead of getting to the deeper heart issue. We remember the internal when the world focuses on the external, not just anger, not just murder, but but dealing with an angry heart or a hateful heart, not just adultery, but dealing with a lustful heart. For Jesus, holiness goes more than skin deep, it's about heart transformation. So we add to life. We're pluses in a minus world. We're internally focused because we believe the internal will fix the external. Amen? Platform, planks of the party platform for Jesus. Look at the next one. We are people of peace in a violent world. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not risk the... Resist the one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other, also. And I didn't put this in the notes, but I want to read the rest of it. Verse 39. And if anyone, or 40, excuse me. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone who forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is dealing with this idea of retaliation. We live in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth world. But I think it's, I've heard someone say before that if you go but live by eye for an eye, everybody ends up blind. Jesus says, if you want to break the cycle of violence in this world, you've got to start being a person of peace and you've got to stop resisting the temptation to get into this attitude of retaliation. We live in a get-even, to-get-ahead world. Human nature is to get even, to get revenge, to retaliate. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. But then everybody just ends up hurting, and no one ends up getting healed. I think Jesus really meant these verses. I think it applies to your marriage. I think it applies to your your children. I think it applies to your parents. I think it applies to your siblings. I think it applies to your co-workers, to your boss. I think it applies in your local politics. I think it applies in international politics and conflict. What would happen if people, all people just said, you know what, we're not going to fight. We're going to find a way. We're not going to fight each other. Let's put it this way. We're not going to fight each other. We're going to fight the enemy who has tried to put division and distraction between the two of us. So many times we are fighting and violent towards the wrong enemy. Jesus says in a world of get even and get ahead, get revenge, retaliate, he says, be a person of peace. He exhibits this on Palm Sunday when Jesus is is leading a procession of his disciples into the city of Jerusalem. And they're laying down palm branches before him and their coats before him. And they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a military parade that's taking place. It is this idea of a king coming into a city. He has just conquered through violence and through warfare. But Jesus hasn't hurt anyone and he hasn't killed anyone. And he doesn't ride into the city on a war horse. He rides into the city on a peace donkey. For centuries, for thousands of years, the donkey has been a symbol of peace. It has been a symbol of riding in and, and being a king of peace in a kingdom that is won over by peace. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, we are people of peace in the midst of a violent world. Planks of the platform. Next one, we love even the world even the ones of the world who seem unlovable Matthew chapter 5, 43 says you have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven i have grown up in a world uh, since I was 11 years old, that the politics of the world and the nation that I have grown up in have been revolving around this idea of hating your enemies. I was 11 years old when I saw the towers fall. I remember it. If you were if you were alive then, you remember it. If you were conscious, you remember it. And since then, a huge meta narrative in our Politics has been to hate the people who did that to us. And listen, I understand that's human nature. I'm not saying I'm more... I, I want to feel that way. We all do. We all want to be angry at the ones who hurt us. We all want to hate our enemies. And then what happens is in a world of 24-hour news and Twitter and, and Facebook, and it's all about... Trying to well up hate in your heart for the person that you want to beat. For the person that you want to win over. The person that you want to subdue, that you want to have dominion over. And there is billions of dollars worth of industries that are totally dedicated to getting you and I to hate each other. To hate someone who votes A different way than I do to hate someone who lives a lifestyle different than mine to hate someone who worships a God different than mine to hate someone whose skin color is different than mine. And listen, they're making billions of dollars off of us in our hate. We have fallen into the trap of the enemy. And it's going across in airwaves and through Wi-Fi and cell towers and satellite. And I think there's something too when Paul said in Ephesians that Satan is the prince of the power of the air that he is able, he's manipulating some of the messages that travel through our airwaves and our Wi-Fi and our radio, all these kinds, and it's getting into our head and it's creating division and it's creating hatred in your heart. I was speaking to someone in the room, I won't call him out, but a few, several weeks ago and saying, you know what, I had to turn off the news because it was just making me hate people. It was just making me hate. Listen, we're not supposed, Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your friends, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he says, no, if you want them to stop being your enemy, you've got to stop hating them. Because hating them only feeds the fire. Pray for your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And what you will find out if you start praying for your enemies is that they weren't your enemies after all. That they were just other fallen human beings who have fallen into the same trap of us versus them that you fell into. And if you just start to pray for them, you'll find out it's easy to love them. Easier. You'll see God's perspective on their life. Can I challenge you to do something? Every time you see a message, a picture, a video of someone who skin color is different than you, whose language is different than yours, who obviously how they're dressed or what they're doing makes them know that their religion is different than yours. Can you put on some God goggles for a second when you look at them and realize that when God looks at them, he sees a beloved human being who was created in the image of God and his heart breaks for them and his heart desires them and God is not willing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance and if we would start using our God goggles and how we look at other people and not listen to what the media wants us to think about that other person and th- I want you to hear me, not excusing behavior, not excusing when people do bad things, they'll have to answer to God for that. But I'm not the one they have to answer to for that. God is the one. My job is to look at them the way God looks at them, as beloved human beings created in the image of God. Can you do that this week? Practice that this week when you're watching the news. And if it's hard to do, just turn the news off. Most of you have already decided who you're voting for anyway. Nothing different's going to happen. It's okay. Turn it off. Go enjoy life. Find something, find something different to focus on because it's corrupting your soul to allow that hatred in. I'll move on. Next plank of the platform, we're generous when the rest of the world tells us to be greedy. Jesus in Matthew 6, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus, he doesn't say don't give. He just says don't make it about you when you give. He doesn't say, don't be generous. He just says, don't make it about you when you're being generous. Do it in secret. Don't need the praise of someone else to do it. Just do it because it's the right thing to do. Look at verse 19. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying, listen. Anything that you're trying to get, get, get in this world, in this world that's all about getting and greed and about material possessions, you can't take it with you. It's not going to make a hill of beans difference when you stand before the Lord. It doesn't matter. So instead of wasting your life trying to get, why don't you waste your life trying to give? Waste your life trying to give as much as you can to as many people as you can, to help as many as you can. And when he's talking about treasure in heaven, if you would spend your life on the kingdom, instead of spending your life trying to get stuff, you'll find out that when you're in the kingdom, you've got everything you need and your loved ones will be there with you, and your friends and neighbors will be there with you, and you'll be able to say, you know what? This was a life well spent because it's not about the possessions I couldn't keep with me, but it's about the people I could take with me. Come on. And we live in this. If I, if we, we believe that if I give, there won't be enough for me. If I'm generous, there won't be enough left over. I'm like that with my dessert. We were eating out the other night and we were getting we were in Gentry, Arkansas, up in northwest Arkansas, eating at the Wooden Spoon. If you've never been there, when next time you're in northwest Arkansas, go to Gentry and go to the Wooden Spoon. I think they're only open Fridays and Saturdays. Awesome food. Really, the reason to go is for the dessert, though. And listen, just trust your pastor. Get the bread pudding. OK, just trust me. So we were we both got a bread pudding and it's big. I mean, it's like that big. You know, it's huge. And Katie, we were eating their leftovers last night because we couldn't finish it. And she said, I didn't think about it. We could have gotten one and just shared it. And I said, no, we couldn't. No, no, we couldn't. I love you, but no, we can't share. (laughs) Because I knew, even though I couldn't eat it all then, that I was going to have coffee sometime later and I was going to want the rest of my bread pudding. And we treat life like I treated my bread pudding and say, if I just am generous, there's not going to be enough left over for me. But look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things that you've been trying to waste and spend your life getting, all these things will be added unto you. Something about the kingdom, when you take care of the kingdom, the kingdom takes care of you, he takes care of your needs and there's always more left over. It's like the loaves and fish. Little boy only had a fish sandwich to offer, but he gave it to Jesus, and when Jesus was done breaking and blessing that bread, 5,000 plus people were fed, and then if you read it, 12 baskets full left over. There's always an abundance in the kingdom. We're generous when the rest of the world tells you to be greedy. Next month, I'm going to be doing a series on what the Bible says about money. So this month, I did politics, and next month, I did money. So if any of y'all are left at the end of these two months, you know, we'll be doing good. But we're going to focus on generosity. You're going to be given opportunities to be generous, not to this church, but to people in our community and people in the world, and it's going to be great. We want you guys to be a part of that. It's important to the kingdom. Last one, and I'll be done. Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount with three statements. Matthew chapter seven, he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this sums up the law and the prophets. We know this as the golden rule. I was taught this in school and I didn't even, when I was a kid, I mean like little, I remember being taught this rule in school. No one told me Jesus said it. (laughs) Found out later, oh, that's Jesus. That's the Bible. If you want to sum up the politics of Jesus in one statement, this is it. Do unto others as you would also have them do unto you. When you go in the voting booth. When you. Mark that ballot, when you post, when you share, when you talk about, when you speak about these things, this is the test. (laughs) This is the test do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Matthew 7, verse 17, Jesus goes into this whole thing about trees. And he says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. If you go and look back at Matthew chapter 7, he's talking about your heart. And he says, if you would deal with the roots issue in your heart, your politics will get straightened out. If you would make your views on how to live together and relate to one another in society, align, align your heart with those views, all this other stuff will get straightened out and you'll be a fruitful tree for the kingdom. But there's a whole lot of churchgoers that don't have this part worked out and they're not fruitful. They're in the, they're in the church, they're serving the Lord, but there's no fruit to be seen in your life. Examine yourself. Am I, am I a tree that's bearing good fruit? And what do I need to do to fix that if I'm not? And then Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Pastor Katie, would you come? Jesus says, The very end of the Sermon on the Mount, this is the last words he says. Whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. I think sometimes we take this, we've all heard this, the the whole thing about doing what Jesus says and you'll be like a house built on the rock. We've all heard it. But did you know it was coming after all of those words where he says, love each other, turn the other cheek, Give to other people, love your enemies, all those things that we don't really like to do. (laughs) We kind of pick this one passage out and we say, yeah, if we just, if we get saved, then we're the person that's living on the solid rock. No, that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, if you come and ask me for forgiveness and ask me for mercy, that then your house will be built on the solid rock. It's not what he said. He said, if you hear these words that I just spoke to you in the Sermon on the Mount, these words about treating other people like you want to be treated, these words like turning the other cheek, these words like loving your enemies, these words like being generous, if you do those things, then your house will be built on the solid rock. Then your life when the winds come and the floods rise and, and, and the storm comes, then you'll be able to stand because you have not only trusted me to forgive you, but you've trusted me to lead you. You've trusted me to arrange and, and organize things in your life in alignment with my kingdom and with my desires. Let me ask you this. If you're a Christian in the room, you've, you've asked the Lord for forgiveness, but you still feel like you're not on a firm foundation in life. I want to ask you to examine your heart, your choices and your decisions. And are they lining up with Jesus' words in Matthew's chapter Matthew chapter five, six, and seven? Words like turning the other cheek and being generous and, Loving your enemies and forgiving your enemies and not just rule following, but seeing your heart transformed. If you do these things, he says, your life will be built on the solid rock. We need a firm foundation in our life. Amen. If you're on the solid rock, Fox News can't sway you, CNN can't sway you, QAnon and whatever that whole deal is, that can't sway you because you're on the solid rock. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know who I'm called to be. I know how I'm supposed to treat people. I trust Jesus as my God, as my captain. And no storm can blow me down. No flood can wash me away because I've planted my life on the words of Jesus.